Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your guest host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. In today's episode, we're joined by Mike Bollinger, Global Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for Cornerstone On Demand, a learning and talent management software company based in Santa Monica, California. Mike joins us today to take a closer look at the efforts organizations are taking to reskill and upskill their workforces, or so they think. Mike is going to walk us through the skills competence gap that is challenging many organizations and leaving business leaders and their employees misaligned. Mike, welcome to the HR Works Podcast. Thank you very much. All right. Well, it's great to have you on. Now, before we jump into our conversation about the skills confidence gap and what our HR leaders can do to really close that gap and drive forward to a successful 2022 and beyond, I just want to introduce you to our audience. So if you don't mind, tell us a bit about yourself and walk us through your career path. What got you started and led you to a career pursuing training and skills development? Uh, That's a great question. So I'm what you call the uh, multi-career kind of an individual. I started out to work in um, finance and ended up finding a career in IT. And that culminated in a career as the CIO of a large school district in Wisconsin. We did some very advanced things. But as part of that, I took away a real love of learning. And when I started to, to look around, I've actually worked at both Oracle and SAP. I've been in our side of the industry for 25 years. I took that school district through Y2K. I, I really, really did like the people part of that job. So um, about seven years ago, I, I made, remade myself in, in 2001 into an HR individual, an HR thought leader. And then about seven years ago, I decided to go to work for Cornerstone for a couple of reasons. Cornerstone, really, really large learning development, talent management company, um, 75 million users, 6,000 customers in 180 countries and 50 languages, and it's been around since uh, 1999. And just the right size organization with between 2,500 and 3,000 employees focused on learning and development of individuals. And it sort of filled my passion from there. So I moved from being very technical into an HR technology kind of a role, into a thought leadership role, into a HR practitioner role. And so I really had three careers and I've enjoyed each one of them immensely. That's great. And it's a really exciting path. I love asking that question to all of our guests because you get a different story every time, but there is always that central thread of liking people and wanting to work with people and that people piece of people operations or human resources that brings everybody in. So thanks for sharing that, Mike. So I always tell the story when I was in, in working in the school district, you know, you, you wonder, sometimes it gets frustrating as you're in a leadership role and something. And, and every time I would get a little frustrated, I'd just go sit in the lunchroom in an elementary school and I realized why I was doing that work. And that started that whole love of development and learning in people. That's great. That's a really good way to reset too. And again, kind of bring you back down to why we're doing what we do. Yep. So walk us through what you currently do as the Global Vice President of Strategic Initiatives at Cornerstone. Well, it's one of those jobs. So for the first five years of Cornerstone, I built and led a group called Thought Leadership and Advisory Services composed of value work and and thought leadership and speaking, which I am a practitioner as well, as well as um, working through quality processes and so on. Then about two years ago, 
I transitioned my role to this strategic initiatives role. And it, it's composed of a couple of parts. First, I lead the Cornerstone People Research Lab. So it sounds a lot bigger than it is, but I am the domain expert in the uh, branded research that we do. The second part is I still do a lot of thought leadership work in terms of thinking about things like today's topic. And then the third thing is within Cornerstone, we, uh, uh, we're always looking at new and unique technologies and processes. And so I serve as the tip of the spear for our chief product officer within our corporate development role. So it's really composed globally of those three big rocks, which keeps me interested. I'll just put it that way. I love it. So Mike, as I mentioned in the intro, we brought you in today to talk about the skills confidence gap, something that really built out of Cornerstone's global skills report. So let's start right there. Can you walk us through the concept of the skills confidence gap and what it represents for workforces and more importantly, the relationship between business leaders and their employees? Sure. So in, in 2020, we commissioned the first skills, global skills report that, that came out. And um, as a part of that, we baked into it a view from the employee perspective and then a view from the employer perspective because we wanted to combine those two perspectives. Now, as we had commissioned the report and as we started doing the survey work, it happened right in the middle of COVID. So we were a little concerned that perhaps there would be a negativity attached to it, which we didn't find. So as a side note, what we found was a fairly optimistic viewpoint on the part of individuals and employers that companies were trying to do what they could during the pandemic, which I found you know, reassuring. So we were able to ask those questions. But then the focus of this was uh, from the employee and the employer perspective was really around the notion of how confident you feel. So from an employer perspective, we asked, I feel confident in our ability to develop the skills of our employees and look at the skill gap. And we used a Likert scale, which we're all comfortable with from agree to strongly agree to strongly disagree and disagree. And then we asked the same thing to the employees in terms of, I feel confident in my organization's ability to develop my skills. And what we found was, and we, we just compared the agree and strongly agree. And what we found was in the original report in 2020, that there was a 30 point gap in those two confidence levels. So the employers, for the most part, felt like they were making an investment, but the employees were saying to us in that first report, not so fast, I'm not sure I'm able to consume it. At the point of 90% of employers agreed, 60% uh, of employees were agree or strongly agree. So that got us thinking. All right, so we've got this confidence gap. Um, so we, when we went back in 2022, we wanted to revisit that gap. We wanted to dive deeper into what was in that gap because the pandemic now had become a little bit more part of our culture. And then we added an additional lens, which was the notion of a high performing organization. So then we wanted to look at the, the skills confidence gap from both the employee employer perspective, as well as from a high performer organization perspective. And what we found was the gap actually grew by a percentage point It went up to 31%. But what was even more telling was the confidence on the part of both parties, the employer and the employee went down. So um, I think part of that is related to, and we want, we dug in deeper with some of those levels. Part of that is related to the fact that uh, we've been working on this and maybe we're not making the progress that we want. 
But what was really, really important here was that um, when we added the lens of the high-performing organizations, that gap was only 11%. There was alignment between the organization's employees and employers. The laggards, on the other hand, had a 48% confidence gap in terms of how employees felt about the skills development efforts going on there. This is telling and very statistically significant. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you're seeing such a wide range. And I've got to think that the last two years have really thrown a wrench in the mix for so many organizations and maybe created that wide range of feedback between high performing organizations and then those laggards you mentioned that are 40% in the disconnect. So walk us through that. I mean, we've seen so much change since 2020. And it's so great that you ran this initial global skills report in 2020. A lot's changed. We've learned a lot in the last two years. So in the Global Skills Report, what's revealed about the current state of the skills confidence gap and how have the last two years impacted that metric? So for the audience, um, the 2020 was our baseline and the 2022 is the one we're talking about now, just to be clear. Um, And what we did in the 2022 report, we hypothesized that we would still see a confidence gap. So we asked some additional questions around the components that might go into that confidence gap around skills development. And those components could be things from employee development to leadership development, internal mobility, engagement, DEIB, quality of hire, which is my favorite, and retention. So we asked next level questions around that. And then we again compared the employee and the employer Um, in terms of uh, the employee, how successful do you feel you've been? And the employer, how successful do you feel you've been? And we clearly see that the confidence gap difference remained throughout the data. And what we also found that employees in laggard organizations were substantially pessimistic about their talent outcomes. Now, one of the best examples or one of the most prominent examples I give people when we talk about this next level around these particular areas of function is the idea of leadership development. Now we've been focused on leadership development for a long time as practitioners. And what we found was a very high difference in both the employer investment, nearly two full points in leadership development and a very significant set of negativity from the employees around in the laggard organizations around not being able to develop leaders. That was the most significant gap that we had in that next level of detail. Even more interesting, if you go back to my initial comment about an 11% gap in high performing organizations, that close proximity between the employee and employer sentiment in leadership development was just a small significant difference. There was great agreement that the success going on in leadership development on a high-performing organization, there was alignment in those two views. That, I think, is one significant thing to point out in terms of if you are actually making an investment in a particular initiative, whether it be leadership development, quality buyer retention, whatever it is, you have to make sure that you're in alignment with the employee perspective or it won't be successful. And I think that's a key takeaway. Right. Thank you for that, Mike. There's an understanding, there needs to be an understanding of the value from both sides. The employer has an understanding and a, an intent with implementing any learning and development programs, but it really doesn't serve a purpose unless the employee sees the value on their end as well. So what's driving the em- 
employers to really focus and prioritize learning development more so in this modern workforce than even before. Upskilling is nothing new, but it seems like that's come really to the forefront in the last year or so for a lot of organizations focusing on learning and development and even to your point, leadership development. What's driving that? So, and think of leadership development as one component of the overall skilling development process, but one that's very telling because we focused there. So I think what's really happened here um, is a couple of things. One, you mentioned it, skilling is not something necessarily new. I told you I, I worked at SAP and back in the early 2000s, I could put in KSAs and do a gap analysis and those kinds of things. But the problem was, that it cratered under its own weight. In other words, you had to maintain catalogs and so on. And that was a a significant lift, so it didn't necessarily take off. As a result, we came up with competencies which allowed us to take some advantage of skills, but generalize as well from the maintenance perspective. If you fast forward to today, a lot of the technology now allows for that evergreen process for the skills through scraping, through AI, and so on. So I think that's what started this resurgence in it. But the interesting parts about it for individuals is is a little broader than that. You want to connect job seekers with skills and remove barriers to entry as a result of that. It's a it's a level of democratization that can occur. That's a that's a good thing for all of us. Um, obviously, you have to build operation operational model resilience, and COVID has led us to that. So by reskilling employees and being able to adapt their their roles, there's some operating model agility and resilience that you're building in. But let's define the difference here of upskilling, reskilling, and then what I call new skilling. So reskilling involves training employees on an entirely new set of skills. All right. And in our skills report, we did not necessarily distinguish here. We did in a comparative report um, that we did as well. But in the global skills report, we just focused on skilling overall. But there are three levels of skilling. There's the reskilling, which is new set of skills, the upskilling, which is improving. Um, you want to be able to impact their area of expertise and give them deeper knowledge. And then there's something I call new skilling, which is a proactive data-driven approach to learning that leverages both partnerships and tools and strengthens skills and develops new skills. And so organizations are starting to recognize this notion, even though they're not using the term, this notion of using data for skilling. And I think that's what's really driving it forward. It's the need of organizations to be able to respond to the business and be able to do that with people who can get the work done. And I think that's what's driving it more than anything else. Interesting. Are are there certain businesses in maturity level that focus more on one than the other. I'm thinking new skilling, does that fall more toward organizations that are maybe coming out of the gate and that are really starting to build? Or is it across the board? Is that shared with both new upstart ventures and long established organizations? I think it's across the board, but as you might surmise with organizations that may be smaller and startup, there's a lot of cross skill stuff that you have to do this by its nature, which grows the individual. Right. Um, But you're seeing a lot of this, particularly in professional services, healthcare, surprisingly, because you have to have a whole different set of skills and a whole different way. There's a freshness associated with that. Manufacturing is another area where I'm really seeing that. Lights out manufacturing is a significant component of this notion of new skilling. So some of it is industry-based, some of it is size-based, and candidly, some of it is culture-based. And that's 
where we were really excited about the research in the high performing organizations because a lot of that is cultural. Interesting. And it definitely seems like the approach to leadership that's changed in the last two years. Everybody moving to some new version of a work distribution, whether it's hybrid, fully remote, in person, but managing the changes of the last few years, it's changed what leadership is. And so I'm sure there's a component of that too, of learning how to be new leaders in this modern era that leans to upskilling training and building new leadership methods. I, I think that's a part of it. I mean, if you go back to our, our one level deeper on the skills confidence gap, and it was a broad spectrum, including employee development and leadership development and mobility and quality of hire and so on. But we know that in order to affect change, it's your uh, first level leaders in particular that are going to be able to do that. That presupposes a set of skills on that leadership individual that is different now. It's it's coaching skills, it's development skills uh, focused on the outcome of the employee um, it's placing a set of new expectations on leaders that I think we're responding to, but it has changed, I would agree. Okay, Mike, let's now focus and see if we can get our listeners some solutions, maybe if they are struggling or seeing some difficulty in upskilling efforts. So for those organizations that are struggling to align the employer to employee upskilling efforts um, and understanding of the upskilling efforts, what are some of the biggest challenges and hurdles causing that misalignment? We thought about that in, in this uh, survey, and actually one of my, my favorite numbers comes from Gartner, where they asked 3,000 candidates in June, where do you look for a new job? And only 33% of them said, at my current employer, which is like a surprise, but yeah. candidly, um, you want that to change. So we had that in the back of our head when we started talking about um, the skills confidence gap in this report. So a couple things around um, how you can uh, respond to that. We did ask the employees, what is your satisfaction with solutions themselves? And, and solutions is a broad spectrum of things, technology being one of them. Obviously, I work for Cornerstone, but it was a set of solutions. So when we asked them about the solutions and their satisfaction, now this is just the employees, their satisfaction, only 10% of laggard organizations were satisfied with the solutions that they were being provided, or 91% of high-performing organizations were satisfied with the solutions that they were being provided. That's a huge disconnect. And uh, kudos to, to Canada, apparently something that Canada is doing very, very well, but 100% of the um, employees in high-performing organizations felt good about it, and 25% of the laggards. So, um, Canada was a leader in this solution satisfaction answer. So that's one thing. You want to make sure that the employees are actually happy with and able to consume what it is you're putting out there. That seems like a no-brainer, but this is a really stark contrast that we were able to find. So then we also asked, in alignment with that, from a variety of perspectives, how do you go about finding an opportunity? And how do you go about thinking about your career and so on? And we asked people to rate and rank things like internal mentors and external mentors. Obviously, you would think independent research would play up there, internal career guides and a skills development platform, which is technology, and then my manager or my leader, and then social media. Now, when we went in and asked these questions around how do you go about looking for a new opportunity and getting that career advice, I was surprised. I expected social media would just, you know, knock the charts out. Sure. And 
what it turned out was very, very small, 15% and so on. So with the uh, laggard in the high-performing organizations, in the high-performing organizations, nearly half said, my manager. And nearly two-thirds said, the skills development platform. So there's a, an expectation on the part of high-performing organizations that I have places to go to answer that question. On the converse, with the, uh, the laggard organizations, uh, less than a quarter looked for their manager and two out of only two out of 10 looked at the skills development platform themselves. So the takeaway to your question is, what do you do with organizations that are struggling? Involve your manager, take a really hard look at what it is that you're providing your employees and ask them, is this working for you? That's interesting. It goes back to one of the leadership philosophies that I've heard from a few of our guests of people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. Absolutely. And that really points to it. The other thing I tell people is, look, it's not about money. Now, money is not a motivator. It's a demotivator. In other words, if I'm not happy with what I'm getting paid, I'll leave. But if I'm happy with some of the other things, then additional money is nice, but it's not the central focus. So yes, managers. And believe it or not, not just managers, but also the ability to be in charge of my own career, the ability to have places that I can go, such as those mentors, so that I can have conversations about me and my my role and the work that I'm doing. Those are high value uh, moments on top of parity and pay. So Mike, that leads us really nicely to my next question of what are some of those key factors that you're seeing out of the high performing organizations that sets them apart in employee development I mean, that sounds like that's one step right there is providing a mentorship program where there is an opportunity for employees to develop their future, right? Keep building their skills and think about that next step. And also challenges what you mentioned with those leaving organizations and looking outside of the organizations for the next step instead of internally. So a couple things there. So first, before I, I answered the specific question, we need to recognize that our strategies need to meet two sets of needs now. We need to meet both the organization's needs and the employee needs. As an organization, we have strategic goals and we have pipelines and growth and desired skills. And on the employee side, we have individual goals and career aspirations um, and the idea of personal growth. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. They actually are a shared mission. So I always, I, I boil it down to a real simple soundbite, which is talent mobility is very employer centric. Career mobility is the shared mission between the employer and the employee that yields good results for both. Now, in the report, um, we came out with five significant recommendations, all right? And uh, one of the key takeaways is, is that it's not one thing. It's a set of things. It's broad initiatives and not just a single approach. That's an absolute best practice for high-performing organizations. But let's tick off the five. First, focus on future skills that will make an impact. 80% of employees at high-performing organizations felt like their company had insight into the gap between current skills and the future. So make sure you can do that. Second, integrate skill building with under other career development tools. 74% of employees want it to be tailored and comprehensive. Third, take ownership, create a culture of skill building. 95% um, of employees in high performing organizations felt like their company had a sense of responsibility back to that shared mission that I talked about. 
The fourth one is um, you want to offer uh, offer meaningful personalized content. This was a key takeaway and the number one things employees asked for, which is um, make sure that I have more skills content available to me. For 40% of the employees looking for information, the skills development platform was their first stop. Make sure that, you know, what's the old joke? You only get one chance to make a first impression. Make sure that that first impression continues. And then finally, adopt an internal first hiring mindset. For high performing organizations, it's that internal first mindset. The people that you're looking for already work for you. One last thing that I'll say is there was a significant um, sentiment around stretch assignments at high performing organizations. Employees felt like that helped them grow. The notion of a stretch assignment at laggard organizations, not even close. Interesting. Wow. We added one additional component because we know that the skills and talent shortage from 2020 was the major component. So we asked the employers, are you prioritizing an investment? And high-performing organizations, three-quarters of them had already started or were starting within the first year. Laggard organizations, nearly half um, weren't going to start within the next three years. And so, uh, and 20%, not even within five years, they had no focus there. So it's consistent with the, the five outcomes that I just talked about and a prioritization on investment. Those are five really great tips to really become those high-performing organizations within the workforce and deliver to their employees and buy in on, on employee development. I loved what you said there, Mike, about looking internally to find your next great hire and to look to promote internally to advance and build your company. I think that ties back into the corporate culture piece that you mentioned from the start in terms of those high-performing organizations are the ones where there's confidence in the company. When you're looking internally and you see that, hey, there's an opportunity and my hard work is being recognized and there's an opportunity to advance and grow, you're invested in your company, you believe in what you're doing. The opposite side of that with the laggards, it seems like if you're not promoting internally, you're going to get burned out or there's going to be a lot of attrition pretty quickly in your current role. And the feeling that you aren't really thought of as somebody advancing, that's going to weigh down corporate culture. It all seems to tie together there. Clearly, clearly, yes. So one thing I like to do with so many projects, there's an advantage to having outside eyes and looking into an organization or a project, you name it, and seeing, hey, there's something wrong here right off the top. Um, I do that with any of my new employees that join my team. I always have them look and say, hey, I want your fresh perspective. You're going to see something I may not notice. So when you look at organizations that are struggling, that are the laggards, what is one thing you could say today to stop doing immediately that's hurting your upskilling efforts and creating that skills gap? Well, I would actually say three things, but to answer the one thing question itself, it's not one thing that you can do. It has to be a broad set of initiatives around um, making those changes. So it has to, has to connect. It has to be a, a broad set of initiatives. And a lot of times what organizations will do is to say, if we do this, then this will be the outcome. And it's not that causal. It's more of a casual. So what we know as a best practice is do a broad set of things, not just one thing. So if there's one thing for organizations to stop doing, don't think that there's one thing that you can do that will make that change. That's a mindset itself. I love it. That's good advice. <laughs> the second thing is a lot of times within HR, and we've been saying this for years, so for those of you that are rolling your eyes, I apologize ahead of time, but 
talk to your business leaders about what it is that they're doing and what it is that they need and use their measures for the outcome. We have so much, there's such a tendency to think about it from a, an HR practitioner perspective and our own measurements. If you go talk to the business leaders and use their measurements rather than ours, which would be the other thing that I would stop, I think you'll see more success. Great advice there. Thank you, Mike. So in looking at learning development in the training landscape over the past few years, what's the most unexpected thing that you've seen change and occur since 2020? So a couple of things. So leaders as coaches, and we've talked about that and getting work done, right? It's situational management. And so this notion that leaders are both coaches as well as uh, other parts of their, uh, of their role really came to the forefront in terms of during COVID. Um, whether or not you're, you're working in a hybrid environment or you're working um, in a physical environment, leaders have to be present as coaches. So for the old school folks, it used to be called management by walking around, finding things that people need help with and helping them with that. So that's, uh, that's how you get to know more around skills. But from skills itself, um, from a, a technology perspective, We've tried to make skills about people, but it, we, it's actually that we want people who can do the job, not people who have the skills. So um, what technology has done and the skills training landscape has done is it's created this notion of equivalency and adjacency when it comes to skills, what could be known as bridgeable skills. What can these things that I have from a capability perspective, what else can I do with them? And let me give you a really good example natural language processing, very technology focused. And there's a big need as you start thinking about the UIs and the interfaces that are coming for natural language processing. Surprisingly, people who are really good at NLP are marketing people. And so those skills that they have actually translate and are adjacent to the idea of going onto a NLP project from a technology perspective. So the point I think or the most unexpected thing is We've got this notion of capabilities and more and more the technology is allowing us to flatten that and allow for that broader viewpoint. I find that exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else you're excited about, Mike, coming up for the future of learning and development? Obviously, technology is such a big driver there, but what else are you excited about? So, you know, the capabilities in building the, the data fundamentals, that's awesome. And it does. It I go back to my you know, early SAP example where it cratered under its own weight and now there's some evergreen processes. That one excites me because that means that we can move forward. I also like and am looking forward to recognition of uh, valuable skills that extend beyond just work and education. If you take into account things around apprenticeships and, and general life experiences and so on, this notion of capabilities around projects that I've done and other things, those are things that we're going to start including in the whole person. And I think the last thing that would, would excite me a little bit, and this is for the larger enterprises, but um, I have a certification in strategic workforce planning, which has always been this really great idea. And some people have done really, really good work in it, but it's hard to do. And with this new set of data and this new set of equivalencies, and with the ability to take disparate pieces of data and pull them together, perhaps strategic workforce planning can actually work for all of us in this new world. And I look forward to that too. 
That's great, right? It's using new technology and, and understanding how to utilize that to be more effective and just find and build the teams that you need to address the issues that are current and also build for the future. That's all great. So we're here with Mike Bollinger, Global Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for Cornerstone On Demand. Mike, you gave us some really great information just looking at the skills competence gap and understanding the global skills report that Cornerstone puts out. We're going to make sure that's available to our listeners through HR Daily Advisor, and we'll give you a direct link to that. Yes, it's freely available. But let's focus on you a bit more. Um, What have you learned over the last two years that's made you a better leader? We've gone through so much. So many of us have changed and developed and learned new things. So what have you learned that's made you better in leadership? Well, you know, I, I think about being a leader in a variety of different ways. I think there's, you know, there's one study that talks about being self-aware and prioritizing your own personal development, making sure others develop, encourage innovation and strategic thinking, be ethical and practice, you know, uh, communication. But I would add one additional thing, and it's something I've learned over the last couple of years, actually the last three or four, which is you have to be both human and you have to add celebration when good things occur. And you have to celebrate a lot. Um, doesn't mean you don't have uh, the, the difficult conversations. You have to. But you want to celebrate successes and recognize that, that people more than ever need to attach. They need to attach in a positive way. Uh, Gallup just released a rising unhappiness study, which it, it just absolutely struck me. And I want to call out a couple of bullets. 3.3 billion people want a great job, but only 300 million think they have one. Wow. wow. Right? Yeah. Um, three in 10 people experience food insecurity, which is another area that we could talk about as a whole other podcast. I've been involved in, in food banks for a long time. And, but the other one that struck me is over 300 million people don't have a single friend. And it just came out. This particular rising unhappiness study, I think, is an opportunity for us as leaders to create that celebration and create that a positivity and give people something that they can attach to. Um, when I, uh, as a leader at the Thought Leadership and Advisory Services, I would always, on a Friday, I'd shoot out what I called a parting shot. It had nothing to do with business. It was just a humorous, go enjoy your weekend email with some sort of a meme. You know, and then people would pile on and, and go back and forth. That's one example of, you know, just humor and positivity. I love it. But always celebrate good results. It's change management 101. We forget to do that. And people will attach to that celebration. Thank you for that, Mike. That's fantastic. That's one of the challenges we're seeing in this new remote era, too, is so many of us are working from home and you don't have that easier opportunity to celebrate and galvanize a team. You've got to be super intentional. You've got to think about opportunities and ways to let everybody's guard down, relax, celebrate, enjoy each other's company a bit in a new model. Uh, and I think we're all learning how to do that in different ways. That's a great one. You use the right word, intentional. And and look, I'm as I'm as guilty as anyone is forgetting that to some degree. And so that's a almost a daily reminder for me. Well, we're all human as well, right? And so we're yep. all kind of working to get better. So in my closing question for you, what's the best piece of professional advice that you'd be able to pass on to help other HR leaders? Something you leaned on in your career that you could pay it forward? Uh, again, I think in threes, I apologize. So I'm going to say three things. The first one is a quote, do the right thing. It'll gratify some people and astonish the rest. It's actually a quote from Mark Twain. And I stuck on that early in my career that came through. And my coaching to my kids, and I'm a grandpa, my grandkids as well, is remember, if you do 100 good things, but you do one bad thing, 
All they remember is the bad thing. So always, always try and do the right thing. And then I defer to my grandfather in this last piece of advice, and I've carried this through um, my entire career, which is understand that the way someone treats you is a reflection of how they feel about themselves, not necessarily about you. So remember, who has the yardstick? Who's doing the measuring? And um, that is a way to reach across and bridge what can sometimes be difficult situations. So it, it sort of summarizes and stay positive and do the right thing. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that, Mike. And again, that's great advice to pass along to our HR audience, just as they're continuing to grow their careers as we learn from each other. So Mike, before we wrap here today, do you have anything you'd like to plug and share with our audience regarding Cornerstone or just that you have going on career-wise that you're excited about? One thing that I love to do is a little bit of a humor is that um, my last name is Bollinger, and you may or may not be aware that Bollinger is a very famous French champagne and the champagne of choice for James Bond 007. Um, I got into Twitter very early, so I got the Bollinger handle. Feel free to DM me or uh, join the conversation. Uh, I, I learn as much from others as they learn from me, and that symbiosis matters. I'll be at the, the Gulf Coast Symposium next week talking about this down in Houston, uh, obviously at HR Tech, um, we'll be at, at Unleash. Uh, again, I encourage you all to go out and get a copy of this skills report. It's freely available. Rising Tide Lifts All Boats. That's part of my role for all of us. And um, there's some really good pieces of advice that, um, that you'll find in there, some really interesting statistics as well. That's great. And Mike, we'll make sure that report is available through hrdailyadvisor.com. We'll provide that link through our website. We'll make sure, as you mentioned, that is readily available for our audience. The word is 2022 skills confidence gap. That'll get you where you need to go. Perfect. Okay. Well, Mike Bollinger, again, thank you so much for joining the HR Works podcast. It was great having you on and we'll definitely have you back next time and, and keep the conversation going. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the HR Works Podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us on all major streaming platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible. 